Welcome back to Crudax, Murdered in Oil Town, Who Killed Debbie and Sandy. This is episode four. At this point, through this, we've done one, two, and three, obviously. With this episode four, we're finally starting to get to the meat and potatoes of the case. We talked some about the leads that detectives followed, a couple dead ends, and then a couple of live ones. We mentioned some names, one being Mickey Crawford, who was victim Debbie Merritt's boss. A polygraph examiner gave him a test, and according to him and what he told officers, Mickey knew something about the murders. So later, even police received an anonymous tip that a white van was seen in the area where the bodies were found around the time they disappeared. Mickey Crawford had a white van registered to his business, and that van mysteriously disappeared. The other was Jan Robbins, a woman who knew the women and allegedly knew something about the murders, but was ordered to keep quiet by an unnamed police officer who intimidated her into quiet submission. And then, of course, three, there's a guy named Bobby Jarvis, who was a bar owner, an outlaw, and a, quote, no good son of a gun. This man was deep into the Baytown nightlife and had many businesses and political connections, and I'll go over that later. And he was even connected to police officers J.C. Deal and assistant police chief Bob Dabney. So how did Debbie and Sandy get tangled up with this guy, Bobby Jarvis? And that is what we're going to talk about. I'm Jen Schaefer, and this is Crude Axe Murder in an Old Town, Who Killed Debbie and Sandy, Part 4. So let's go over what detectives know so far. The victims' names are Sandy Terrell and Debbie Merritt. They're both in their mid-30s. They're both divorced. Family members have been ruled out of their abduction and homicide. A person of interest is Debbie Merritt's boss, Mickey Crawford, who owned ProAd, a business that did uniforms for places like the Baytown Police Department. He and Debbie were allegedly having an affair. Mickey was also allegedly tied into the Baytown nightlife and the bars that the murdered women like to go out to. These bars include Texas Saloon. It's either mine and yours or yours and mine club, but let's just say mine and yours club and Palms Oasis Lounge, just to name a few. One of the guys who ran these establishments was a guy named Bobby Jarvis, who was a local outlaw and allegedly friends with members of local law enforcement and the Bandidos Motorcycle Club alike. They all come together through information provided by a woman named Jan Robbins, who knew the women and men alike. Police asked her how the women would have come to know Bobby Jarvis and how are they tied into him. And so that comes with something new to tell you. It's another name. So this name is a guy named Gary Odom. 
Now, Gary was a bartender who worked at some of the bars, specifically Texas Saloon. He was a local musician and he played in local bands. And Gary was also a damn good mechanic. People who knew him said that he could fix anything with an engine. Gary, also at this time, was allegedly in the throes of drug addiction, specifically cocaine. But he was known as the fun party guy, a nice guy even. He was the type of guy who people claimed never met a stranger, the same phrase used to describe Sandy Terrell. And interestingly enough, Sandy's twin sister Candy told detectives she even heard through the grapevine that Gary Odom was actually the last person to see the women alive on the day of their disappearance, November 15th, 1985. This gave detectives motive to interview him. And since they also needed to interview his boss and friend, Bobby Jarvis, but they couldn't pin him down due to his lack of cooperation and connections, they decided to zero in on Gary and it's a move that eventually paid off. On August 12th, 1987, Gary agreed to give them an interview and they conducted it at the West Chambers County Court Annex. I'm going to summarize the transcript of this meeting for you. It was between my dad, Texas Ranger Maxwell, and Gary Odom. And just a reminder, this is for adult ears. There's some adult things that are mentioned in this, so. If you have kids around, just earmuffs, you know. So, in the report, Gary Odom stated he first met Debbie Merritt at the Chapter 11 nightclub in Baytown, Texas, between 1982 and 1983. He was a drummer in a band which performed there. He met Sandy Terrell a couple of years later through a cousin named Kenneth Odom. Gary Odom said that he and Kenneth had a sexual relationship with the victims, Kenneth with Debbie and he with Sandy. He stated Kenneth spent a lot of time with Debbie months before she was last seen alive. Gary was then asked when he saw either victim alive, and he stated Debbie Merritt dropped by his residence on East Fail Street that early evening that she was to go on the trip. He stated, She just stopped by to say goodbye. The report notes that he distributed body language which suggested nervousness. There was poor eye contact and a loss of speech control. And that's a direct quote from the report. He told officers then she left and he never saw her again. Then he was questioned about Sandy Terrell and he stated, that she called him during the late afternoon, Friday, November 15th, 1985, and she told him that she and Debbie were going to fly out of town for a job interview, and she wanted to see him that Sunday upon their return, and they made a tentative date. Gary was then asked about his work schedule that weekend, and he said that he worked Friday, November 15th, 1985, from 9 p.m. to 2 a.m., Same thing for Saturday. He worked 9 p.m. to 2 a.m., but he stated that he could not remember what he was doing the day on Saturday or Sunday. The report noted he, again, was particularly nervous during this portion of the interview. 
Gary Odom was then asked about Mickey Crawford, and he stated that Crawford frequented the various Baytown nightclubs, the Texas Saloon, the Mineers nightclub, owned by Bobby Jarvis. Odom reported that he helped Jarvis out with the nightclub and with odd jobs. He described Crawford as a frequent customer, and he was friends with him and Bobby Jarvis. He suggested that Crawford and Debbie at one time had an intimate affair. Odom was asked if he did any part-time auto repairs for money. Odom stated that he had an auto repair garage at his residence on East Fail Street. He was asked if he ever did any mechanical work on vehicles owned by Mickey Crawford. He stated that he did. And he was asked to describe the vehicles and he told them the following. A red Lincoln Continental, an old Chevrolet Malibu, and a 4x4 Datsun pickup. He was then asked, well, did you ever work on a van owned by Mickey? And Odom answered with an abrupt and loud no. And then he was shown copies of checks made out to him by Mickey Crawford for van repairs. The report notes he was visibly shaken and they asked him to look at the checks and he looked at them and he insisted, there's no way. Then they asked him to study the signed endorsements on the reverse of the check and he stated, and this is a quote from the report, that sure the hell is my signature. I don't know how I forgot about it. There were three checks with total payments over $700 from December 1985 to January 1986, just months after the victims were last seen alive. And it lists the checks on the report. Check one, paid to Audi's Automotive, dated December 5th, 1985. The amount was $255 by Harold M. Crawford for delivery van repair. Check two, paid to Gary Odom, dated January 13, 1986, the amount of $230 by H.M. Crawford for Odie's automotive delivery truck repairs. Check three, paid to Odie's automotive, dated January 20, 1986, $244.63 by H.M. Crawford for delivery van repair. Gary then clammed up. He said he had nothing to say about the subject. So, police had to pivot, and then they moved on. This is when another name comes up, and it's a name that I had yet to hear, and this is going to start a whole to-do. So, Gary talked about a guy, and this guy's name was Robert Bob Bass from Humble, Texas, who we met at Mine and Years Nightclub during October 1985. He said this guy Bass was a high roller, and he would also ask him about getting him hookers. Odom stated that he told Bass that he knew a stripper out in Pasadena who was pimped out by her father, gross, and on one particular night, he said to police that Bass called up to the club, asked for Odom, and asked that he send the hooker over to his and his cousin's place. His cousin's name was Donald Parker, and it was out in Humble. And Odom stated that he made the arrangements and he received $100 for setting up the deal. Odom also claimed that he flew in a plane 
with Bob Bass from Houston to San Antonio to pick up and drive a sound truck. This is quote unquote a sound truck, which I don't know what that is. And I had to look into that and I still couldn't figure it out. But they took the plane, they go to San Antonio to pick up a sound truck and drive it back to Baytown. Odom could not remember anything else about Bass. And then the interview was terminated because Gary Odom became uncooperative and he said he wished to leave and they couldn't hold him. End report. Okay, so that's a lot to unpack. Lots of names and lots of things. The key things to remember are the names of the suspects. Let's just name them again. Mickey Crawford, Bobby Jarvis, Gary Odom. There's the missing white van that was brought up and proved with those checks that took him for a ride. And then he brings up the wealthy businessman named Bob Bass. And of course, the bar scene, right? So here's the thing. There's more about this bar scene than just what they got from Gary Odom. Gary Odom, what he gave them is just the tip of the iceberg. Because a little over a month later, October 1st, 1987, a woman came forward a bartender and cocktail waitress who worked at some of the bars that they talked about. Police conducted a formal interview with her, and I have a report of that too. And for hers, I'm going to read it verbatim because there's a lot of things that she gives out there. There's a lot of names, and here's the thing. I'm going to say their names because, I'm sorry, two women are dead, and if there's information about you and things are tied into this, which I do research, so I wouldn't say these names if I didn't research them, then I wouldn't say anything. But I tell you what name I'm not going to give you. I'm not going to give you her name because she is still alive. And I even spoke with her about the case. So in this episode, and when I read this report, I'm going to refer to her as Jane. All right. So there you go. So here's her interview. The investigators present for this one were my dad, Paul Schaefer, and Officer Jamie Glenn. Mr. Glenn is such a stand-up guy. He was an excellent police officer while working. He's a good man. He's just one of the good ones, okay? And I've known him since I was a kid, and he's, he's just always been a very stand-up man. So, again, the date of this interview was October 1st, 1987. The time was 10.45 a.m., and the report reads as follows. This interview was conducted with Jane in an attempt to further explore the background of the following people. Bobby Jarvis, Gary Odom, Mickey Crawford, and the homicide victims, Debbie Merritt and Sandy Terrell. Jane was an employee of Bobby Jarvis and Associates from early 1980s to 1986-87. She explained that she first worked as a bar waitress at the one-time Duke's Club owned by Jim Gerace and Nick Listy. The club was destroyed by a fire, later found out to be arson. This club later opened as the Texas Saloon. After the fire, Jane went to work at a place called Jingle Bob's Club on Bayway Drive. This club, as reported by Jane Doe, was owned by David Hamad. And the silent partner was Bobby Jarvis. The club manager was Jim Marks. During this time of employment, Duke's club was being remodeled and changed to the Texas Saloon owned by Bobby Jarvis. A friend, Doris Cherie, 
called her on March of 1985 and offered her a job. Doris was the club's manager. Jane stated that Bobby Jarvis did not seem to know how to run the club. She explained that Jarvis had many private parties at the club for political reasons. Mayor Emmett Hutto and city councilmen would be invited to these private parties. One large party occurred sometime before the April mayoral election. She described Jarvis as a big supporter of Emmett Hutto. She also identified a record company owner, Denzel Shirley, as having many closed-door session with Jarvis in the club's office. She stated that Jarvis had a very close associate named Gary Odom. Odom was described as always being with Jarvis. She described Odom as an all-around gopher for Jarvis. Jane stated that Odom was a heavy cocaine user and had numerous, after numerous, parties at the club with females who worked and frequented the club. John Craig was a friend of both Jarvis and Odom and spent $150 to $200 a night at the club. Tammy Pope was a club waitress who used a lot of cocaine and had a crush on Gary Odom. Julie Wildcup was an employee who also did cocaine with them. She had a sugar daddy named Jack Hodges of Hodges Door Company. Ellis Wayne York was described as a friend of Jarvis and frequented the bar. A female, F.N.O. Russ, worked at the club and was described as a very, very loyal companion to Bobby Jarvis. She later became the manager of the Rolling Brook Apartments on Decker Drive. T.C. described as a barmaid who was married to Cooter. You couldn't get more Baytown than this. He was Laura's former friend. Jane Doe stated that Bobby Jarvis had a girlfriend named Jean Grady during this time. And she described Grady as a very tight-lipped woman who would never give information on Jarvis. And another associate was identified as Bob Bass, who owned the Lone Star Beer Distributorship in Baytown. She described him as a big money man who frequented the Texas Saloon to see Bobby Jarvis. Jane stated she left the Texas Saloon in July of 1985 when Jarvis fired Doris Cherie. Then later, David Trevino became involved with the business with Jarvis. Around September or October 1985, she went back to work at the Texas Saloon. Jarvis would come in and out to take care of business with David Trevino. Jarvis would talk a lot with Mickey Crawford. Crawford was described as a salesman who sold caps and t-shirts to different businesses. Both Jarvis and Trevino bought jackets from Crawford for advertisement purposes. She stated that Crawford and Gary Odom were also close friends and talked a lot together. Crawford would go by the club every day. Crawford got plastered quite frequently and placed bets through Jarvis. She stated that Crawford lost his ass on these bets. Jane remembers the two deceased females coming into the club during the time period she was shown photographs of the two and readily identified them. She stated that they at times were with all of those guys in the club, but at times stayed to themselves at a table. She did not personally know the two women. And then finally, and this is all verbatim out of the report, by the way, Finally, she said that Crawford asked her to go on a trip with him to Dallas. 
she did. And this occurred sometime around January 1986. He asked her to marry him, and if he left his wife, Margaret, this was in March 1986. Jane did state during October 1985, Jarvis and Odom talked about opening a nightclub in Vinton, Louisiana. No other information can be furnished, and the interview ended. End report. I call this report a Cascarone's report. You bust this one open and names fall out of it like confetti. There are the names we've heard already. Becky Crawford, Gary Odom, Bobby Jarvis, and Bob Bass. You're going to be hearing these names a lot, so get used to them. But there are also names that we have yet to explore. And they're big ones. These are, these are big names. Jim Gerace and Nick Listy were two very well-known businessmen in Baytown. They had a lot of connections. And then there's Mayor Hutto. Hello. He's the mayor. And it's crazy that he's kind of lumped into all these people. And then there's the rest of them. They're like pieces of a puzzle that, when put together, form a network. So what does this network do? And that's what we're going to keep digging into. And then again, at the center of this network, are the two women who were brutally killed, Debbie and Sandy Terrell, murders that still remain unsolved. And it's easy to start to understand why. I told you before that I had a chance to speak with the person behind the report, the woman, Jane Doe. So I got to speak with her just this past year. And upon, upon following up with her, she corroborated the things I heard and discovered. At the time of the women's disappearance, she worked at Texas Saloon and even developed a friendship with Mickey Crawford, and she talked about that a little bit. And he asked her to come work for him at ProAd, basically to take over Debbie's position. And she considered the opportunity and was even given the okay by Nick Listy to pursue it. And these are words out of her mouth. She attended the expo in Dallas to learn the trade and stated Mickey came on to her with other intentions, and she rebuffed him, knowing that he was a womanizer and he basically chased anything in a skirt. She said that after she heard that most people believed Mickey had something to do with Debbie's disappearance, that she backed away from him completely and ceased any sort of friendship or employment. She said she then worked at another bar and left Texas Saloon, went to another bar, and she said the Texas Saloon crowd just seemed to follow, hopping from bar to bar. The core group, according to her, was Bobby Jarvis, Nick Listy, Jim Gerace, Mickey Crawford, and Gary Odom. From time to time, she saw lawyer Ronald Haddix and other, quote, money men, but she couldn't recall their names. So all these names, right? And I would like to take you on a little research trip, if you would. I used her report, and I used the names from the report, and went on a little research journey with them. And I used sites like Open Corporates, Ancestry, People Looker, Clippings from the Baytown Sun, Yearbooks, good old-fashioned Google search, articles, whatever I could find, right? Because I wanted to know the history behind some of the names that Jane supplied. 
So let's go through them. And we know a little bit about Barbie Jarvis, we'll learn more later. We know a little bit about Gary Odom, we'll learn more later. We know a little bit about Mickey Crawford. Let's talk a little bit about Nick Listy and Jim Drace. So Nick Listy Jr. was a lifelong Baytonian. He was a 1955 graduate from Robert E. Lee High School, the same one that Mickey attended, the same one that Gary Odom attended, the same one that the twins Sandy and Candy went to. In the 1970s, he owned Cove Marina. And then later, J&J's Incorporated at the address 215 Alexander Drive. He had a company titled Baytown Innovation Incorporated from 83 to 94. I'm not sure what that business did, but I think it's something to do with technology and mechanics or oil and gas or something. More than likely oil and gas because this is Baytown. Jim Gerace was an accountant by trade. He had several investments in auto businesses including real estate, including Sunbelt Realty and investments with attorney Ron Haddix, the same guy that ran in the circles. He owned a video store, Video Place of America from 84 to 2006. He did some computer operating systems company. And then he had other multiple investment companies from 1985 to 1991. Jim Gerace and Nick Listy Jr. owned several different bars. One was Nikki D's on 2232 North Alexander Drive in the Bay Plaza. And then they owned Duke's Club from 1980 to 1994 off 1917 Garth Road. In March 1983, Duke's caught fire and sustained hundreds of thousands of dollars in damages. It is believed that it was arson. But when it was repaired, it later became Texas Saloon, owned by Bobby Jarvis, and it was in existence under his care from July 85 to January 88. This, of course, is where a lot of these names come from and where the woman with the information where she worked. So the big name here, and the ones that everyone's kind of probably scratching their head, is Mayor Emmett Hutto who has quite a legacy in Baytown. He also graduated from Robert E. Lee and went to Lee College, and he went to UT. In Baytown, his earlier years in Baytown, he opened a place called The Tower on Decker Road. It was initially a drive-in restaurant, but then they turned it into a banquet facility for local civic clubs. In 1970, he joined a group to build the Ramada Tower Center, and he had his real estate business, and in 75 was when he was elected to city council. Three years later, he became mayor. So how was Hutto tied in with this bad guy, Bobby Jarvis? So I was like, let me search for that. So I'm going back to her report, and she said she worked at a place called Jingle Bob's, and it was owned by this guy, M.T. Hamad. So I went in there, I looked him up, and his alleged silent partner was Bobby Jarvis, according to this woman. And this bar was open from 1980 to 1985. So I look into M.T. Hamad and come to find out he was a part of the group to build the Ramada Tower, just like Emmett Hutto. And then later, Emmett Hutto and Ahmad 
headed up the Baytown Country Club Development Company from 1977 to 2000. So he was tied in with this guy, Ahmad, from the 70s on. And so he was tied in with him even when he owned a bar with Bobby Jarvis. And we know everything that Bobby Jarvis was into, or at least the tip of the iceberg. Emmett Hutto also owned Emmett Hutto Builders Incorporated from 1979 to 2000, and it seems it landed some of the city's biggest construction contracts during his mayoral term. And also, in a funny twist, their businesses were registered to P.O. Box number 666. Just saying. So Emmett Hutto was mayor of Baytown from 78 to 83 and then from 85 to 92. During the two-year stint in between his two terms, a guy named James Allen Cannon served as mayor. During his short time, he tried his best to clean up Baytown, and he was in direct opposition to Jarvis's nightclubs, especially the Palms Oasis Lounge. He and Chief Hensey along with several TABC officers, protested the renewal of Palm's TABC license due to lewd and vulgar entertainment. But, of course, it didn't work, and they got their license. In 1987, Reverend Mark Brister took up the same challenge against the club Nikki D's, owned by Nicholas D. Jr. and Jim Gerace. He likewise lost, and Nikki D's received their permit. And this was all in articles written in the Baytown Sun. And what it says to me is it really just pays to be connected, right? And it pays to be in charge. So when they talk about Bobby Jarvis giving money and supporting Mayor Hutto, it all comes to make sense as to why. So there's another name in the report that I found interesting, and that's Denzel Shirley. She claimed that he had many closed-door visits with Bobby Jarvis at Texas Saloon. He was also close to Mayor Hutto and involved in the Baytown political scene and even with police. He was the owner of Shirley Wrecker Service in Baytown, and his business was one of only two companies that had a contract with the city to remove vehicles that were involved in traffic accidents. In 1986, the owner of another record company tried to get his company added to the list of companies that were allowed to do that, but then Baytown City Council shut him down. During Mayor Allen's short tenure, Shirley's business was in a lot of hot water for violations, but nothing really stuck. Again, it pays to be connected. Not all the names mentioned in the report. Let's fast forward and go to another one. Not all of them were stand-up, quote-unquote, business owners and politicians and high-up people. There was the mention of this guy, Ellis Wayne York, who was known to be quite a nefarious character in Baytown. He owned a transmission shop, and he was, quote, soft-affiliated with the Banditos Motorcycle Club. And notice this is two tie-ins. We've got Jarvis, and then we've got this guy, Ellis Wayne York, that hung out there. So far, we've got some soft affiliations there, and that's going to lead to more information. My dad told me a wild story about this guy, Ellis Wayne York, and it was one time in the early 80s. He said he was called out to a local bar because there was a big bar fight, 
And when he got there, he got to the scene, it was just a bloody mess. There were broken bottles, glass, chairs everywhere. It was just a typical brawl scene that you would see in some old Western movie. While he was out front taking a statement from a guy who was holding a bloody t-shirt to the side of his head, apparently part of his ear was missing. Ellis Wayne York exits the bar and just goes down the steps and then he throws the ear towards the bleeding man and says to my dad, here, he can have this back, and then walks off. So that's another shady character that was known to hang out there. There are more stories about him if you care to look up, like court cases. One of them is where he had this woman abducted. He's wild. And then, of course, there's the name that continually is starting to come up more and more into this investigation, and that is outsider Bob Bass, the elusive money man that many saw and talked about, but not many knew. A man who popped in and out of bars with a briefcase full of money and an appetite for drugs and women. What more can we find out about him? So, I did some digging, and it makes me wonder, and it made me wonder, and it still makes me wonder, could Bob Bass be the Bob that they should have been looking for all this time? And we will begin to answer questions about that on our next episode, because that is all the time we have for now. I just left you with a whole lot of stuff. And um, and it's it's a lot, and I get it. And this is why I'm writing it as a book. I mean, I've written of like sixty five thousand. I keep editing it. Whatever. It's it's in between sixty and seventy thousand. There's more to add to it. And honestly, this is still just the beginning. So stay tuned for the next episode. And thank you for checking out this one. This is Crudex, Murder in an Old Town, Who Killed Debbie and Sandy. Stay tuned for the next episode. We're going to be digging into some really good stuff. Keep in mind, we are a small podcast. We are produced by one man, the Russell Dunlap, who takes me reading this and makes it even better. I research, I write, I narrate this thing. He produces it and puts it all together so majestically. We are managed by Amy Dunlap, who keeps us on track. I'm Jen Schaefer. Like I said, I'm the researcher, writer, and host of the show. The intro to this is a song by Two Star Symphony. Go give them a listen. They are fabulous people. You can subscribe to us from our website, www.crudax.com. You can even contribute if you feel so inclined. Contributions really help us out. This thing costs time, and it costs money. And we want to do more of them. So thank you so much for that. And all my sweet listeners, from the very beginning, from the bottom of my heart, you know who you are. Just stay tuned. There's much more to come. And we look forward to telling it to you. All right. See you next time. Bye.